from Kirkco Media. Doctor, doctor, you gotta help me see what's going on. Doctor, doctor. Previously in our Malibu studio, and this time visiting us again by Zoom, we're honored to have Dr. Howard J. Fullman join us to catch up on medicine, practice, and politics, prevention, and of course, a bit about our fight against COVID-19. So may we suggest that you pour yourself a double, sit back and join us on medicine, we're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. First, our host, the quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, my very good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How are you, Steve? Hey, Bill. Good to see you. We haven't had dinner together for a while. I don't even remember what that was like to actually have dinner and enjoy an evening. So, you know, we have one of our favorite experts rejoining us today, Dr. Howard J. Fullman. He's board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology. We'll learn more about that in a minute. Howard served a multi-decade tenure at Kaiser Permanente as partner, board member, president of the executive committee, chief of staff, and chair of the quality committee. He supervised 4,300 staff and over 500 doctors. Howard is now senior operating advisor at the Atlantic Street Capital for their medically focused investments. Dr. Howard J. Fullman, welcome back. Hi, Bill. Nice to be here. Stephen, nice to see you as well. Hey, Howard. Good to see you. So last time we met in our studio in Malibu was only back in February, and it seems like a whole lifetime ago. It's been quite a year, and we're only halfway through it, and we know there's a lot more to come. Howard, I hope you'll forgive me, but I took my nasty pill this morning, so I want to dive into a difficult (laughs) issue. But as of the time of this recording, according to Johns Hopkins, Japan, although infected early, has less than one COVID death per 100,000 population, while the U.S. has 39 COVID deaths per 100,000 population. Japan has more elderly per capita than any other country. They kept their borders open during the Wuhan lockdown. Their stay-home requests by Japanese government have been voluntary, as was any of the closing of their non-essential businesses. And now for a country with one city that houses more than 37 million people, they have less than a thousand deaths countrywide. What the hell is going on? I don't know that anyone knows exactly all of the differences, but I'll give you some of the reasons I think that there may be differences. One is there's probably a genetic component to this disease that we don't quite understand. People are speculating, why was there so much more of it in Italy? Maybe it's because Italians get together a lot more than others. People even wonder whether there might have been some genetic predisposition to the cytokine storms, for example. Another are the comorbidities in patient populations. So age is one thing. You're right. Japanese population is actually older than the U.S. population. But other comorbidities like obesity, which is turning out to be a very significant risk factor. There's unfortunately still a lot more obesity in the United States than there is in Japan. So just because we've sorted out that the age factor may not explain it, but we have some more chronic illness in the United States that may be contributing to it as well. And then, you know, the way we've handled the public health aspect of this, and again, I also want to be very careful about criticism of even the public health system, because I'm sure there's a lot of things we look back and could have done differently, but we also still have a lot of public health officers, some extremely courageous ones. And I'll say that I think, unfortunately, some of our public does not really believe in this pandemic, the seriousness that they should, and that may be affecting the outcomes as well. There are certain communities, as you know, where substantial numbers of people were having just seemingly significant disregard 
And so there might have been large numbers coming in that are just a bolus of people coming in all at once that saturated the healthcare system, made it hard to take care of so many people and possibly people coming in later than they should have it because of perhaps denial about the significance of this illness when it is when it is severe. And it's not because I'm a doctor that I don't want to fault the nurses and the doctors and the rest. It's just I've seen what they're doing and I follow it very carefully and I'm very proud of them. But I think because of the differences in population and our public health system is not working well, is not designed the way it should be, and is not functioning in the way that it has been planned to function in the past. First of all, I agree with you on just about every single point. I do believe the healthcare delivery, when it comes down to doctors, nurses, ancillary staff who are caring for the patients in this country, are courageous, hardworking, dedicated one of the things that is not different is that the treatment of these patients really are standardized. Because we're so global in our information dissemination, remdesivir now is standard and Decadron now is standard. And everybody is looking at the literature very clearly on what to do and what not to do. Hydroxychloroquine quickly dropped out. So there certainly are public health deficiencies. But I think in terms of healthcare delivery, The standard of care has been the standard of care, minimizing intubations, proning patients. This is all stuff that's being done in a standardized way, and everybody is is sort of catching up with, with the literature very quickly. When I look at the two cultures, and I don't have the real stats on this, but two things I would look at if you're, you know, with the the question of comparing Japanese society and the United States would be, again, the the populist compliance. I mean, is the general public compliant with the stay-at-home orders, the distancing orders? And although it may be suggested if 100% of the people are following the suggestion versus the United States, where I'm not even sure what the compliance rate is, but you you can sort of do your own sampling. But I don't think that that we are in the state that we're in at this very second, so much because of the public health entities as it is that we are not as mature as we should be in this country relative to taking care of each other's well-being. The reality is that was a, a nasty question because, you know, the expression there lies, damn lies and statistics. We didn't take into account in that question the number of people who are coming down with the virus and how transmissible it is in the way our society is structured. One thing you have to know about Japan is personal discipline and public respect is at a high level in Japan. Steve, in many of these shows, I've I've thanked you for being on the front lines. You and your brethren are just doing an amazing job at dealing with this pandemic. We, on the other hand, our country is not doing an amazing job. And the part of the lies, damn lies, and statistics that I was referring to is that, frankly, a lot more people are catching the virus as a per capita statistic than in Japan. And the reason for that is because we're sloppy. And I'm just wondering, for those of you in the medical profession, does that piss you off? I can speak to that in two things. One, yes, it makes me angry, but it also makes me incredibly sad because you like to think of the United States as really the leader of the world. And we've led the world in so many positive ways. But this notion of respect for your fellow citizen, a sense of discipline, a sense of greater level of sophistication that we should be afforded because we are a free society. It should make us more advanced in our thinking. It should make us more sophisticated in our response to stress. Yeah, I think we're very proud of our country in terms of the sense of self-expression and the almost duty to speak up. We don't always do that so well, but certainly compared to countries around the world. But I think we've lost a little bit of the concept of the value of expertise 
and the concept of pulling together as a group when it's important to. And it's sometimes hard for people to change that mindset because we're so often in that autonomy mindset and wanting to know everyone's opinion. But at a time like this, there are certain opinions that are actually more valuable. So I'm hoping that since we have months and months of this pandemic ahead of us, that we can get a little bit away from the demonizing and the divisiveness and the politics and stay with the facts and the science and get us collectively to do the right thing because we are not through it and we have a long way to go. What do you think the solution is? Because obviously, philosophically, and we are all on the same page here in this room as we're talking about this, but there is some truth to the fact that if you are slowly eroding your resources financially, eventually not having a business almost equates to loss of life and limb. And a family has to decide, listen, we have no choice. I have to take a risk. I have to go to work. I have to do something. Otherwise, it's either my family is going to die of COVID or my family is going to die of starvation. I'm going to take my chances. You know, what is the equation that allows us to strike that balance amongst those families that they say the average family has about three months worth of cash stored up before they're in dire straits? Very valid point because we've been until now speaking kind of unidimensionally as though the whole the goal is simply prevent as many people as possible from getting COVID, period. Right. And if we do that, that will lead to the maximal savings of life and prosperity and everything. And it's actually not entirely true. So yes, we should be doing prudent things, evidence-based things that lessen by a lot the chances of people getting COVID. But we also have to realize that some of the ways that we're tackling the problem are causing not just economic problems, but their own health problems. So if someone goes from solid financially to impoverished, that has health consequences. In addition, as we know, yes, this is a very, very serious virus, but many people have no symptoms, and we have some sense about who's at the greatest risk of developing severe symptoms or death. And so as part of the public health response and as part of the economic approach, we need to be taking into account how do we save people when actions are being taken that hurt them financially? How do we put some structure around them, whether it's at the school level or what have you, how do we make sure that the other medical care that's also life-saving and important is not forgotten? That's why this is so complicated. So the solutions have to be much more robust. They have to build on the things we've been talking about. But it's also going to mean that we have to stratify people and we have to protect the most vulnerable in a more profound way than those that are less vulnerable. And we have to be thoughtful about how we try to keep things going in the society as we get through the pandemic until we have true game changers. And those game changers, in my mind, the medications that we have so far have been to a degree game changers, there will be more. Getting testing done to a large enough extent that we can actually figure out who should be isolated and quarantined and who should not be and making sure that testing is available very substantially, especially for institutions. And then the ultimate game changer, the, the hope that we ultimately get a vaccine. Would you guys suggest that perhaps we let younger, less vulnerable people go back to work and go back to the restaurants and go back to school and recommend the folks that are more at risk, they stay home? I would say this is where leadership really comes in, because I actually do agree with some version of what you stated. Put the maximum focus on those at greatest risk. I, on the other extreme, for the young and healthy, so to speak, I don't think we should say to them, you just go out and just work, do whatever you want. I mean, that's just absolutely unwise. And we should still recommend to them strongly, and again, this is where leadership comes in, that they take very appropriate, prudent actions, and especially if they have contact with people at higher risk, 
They in particular need to be more isolated from those folks, et cetera. But I'm not convinced that we should do it in a binary manner. The elderly should be isolated and the young and healthy should just be able to do whatever they want without any modifications whatsoever. I think there's something between the extremes that we should be doing, but it's going to take some serious leadership to get that to happen. Just as Stephen said, we're having a devil of a time getting the current recommendations going and have the population adhere to them. And as time goes on, people get fatigued and it gets a little harder to abide by these things, not easier. I'd like to see the politics go away the polarization go away. This is a time for us to come together. We need some solidarity and American resolve and common purpose to get through the next several months. We're going to talk about politics and medicine in just a minute. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Well, we're back with Drs. Howard J. Fullman and Stephen Tabak. I, I don't want to go back to the beginning of COVID, which seems like eons ago. Because arguably, there are those who say that if the administration had handled the beginning of COVID differently, then we might be in a different situation. But if right now we had a new administration and they had to take on what is happening with this pandemic, where Florida, Texas, California, I think Arizona is just breaking out, do you believe that a different administration could have an effect on the disease? You know, ask Texas, ask Florida, ask Arizona. They all were kind of adhering to the party line of our Republican president that said, this is a hoax. This is not as significant as everyone else is making it. And you don't need to be wearing a mask. And everybody in solidarity to the president adhered to his recommendations and showed that we're going to open churches, we're going to open schools, we're going to open restaurants, we're not going to social distance. And they're paying a huge price. And quickly, they shut their societies down and they realized that maybe this wasn't the right choice. So yeah, I think even now, if we had everybody on the same page and this wasn't politicized and we said this is dangerous, yeah, it would save hundreds of thousands of lives over the next year. Well, first of all, the, the obvious, this is a really bad virus. So I want to make the point that I don't care who's running the country, this is a very difficult problem. And you look around the world and yes, you can find some countries that are doing relatively better, but by and large, most countries are having a devil of a time. Now going to your question, Bill, do I think, let's not make it Democrat, Republican, just another administration comes in. Do I think that that would make a difference? Absolutely, I do. I think having the leader of our government make it clear that this is serious. Now we all have to pull together and stop blaming people. What we should be doing is pulling together, coming up with a cogent plan try to advocate for that plan. And that plan should include, in my mind, masks, physical and social distancing, protecting the weakest members and the most vulnerable members of the society, improving testing capacity massively so it could be available on demand, making sure we have an adequate amount of PPE at all times in all states, all hospitals and all institutions, and then making sure every bit of support 
is being given to the scientific community to make sure that as quickly as possible, a credible vaccine can be developed and, and commercialized and more medications can be done. Those, that's, those are the basic elements. So all of that being said, you guys actually have learned a remarkable amount about this disease in a very short period of time. If you look at the Johns Hopkins breakdown, the very early states who contracted massive amounts of this virus, New York and New Jersey, for example, the death rate was off the charts. Can you tell us a little about specifics of what has changed in the last four months that is radically reduced the rate of deaths from this virus? Well, let's start off with the notion of of stay at home, of social distancing, of flattening the curve, because the, the whole reasoning behind that isn't, you know, stay at home forever until the virus decides it, it's going to go away. The whole point of that is to limit the number of people who get the illness so you don't overwhelm your healthcare system. But more importantly, in the long term, you want as many people as possible to avoid the illness so that technology can catch up with the disease. If we can wait long enough, there will be new technology that actually will be life-saving and will mitigate the severity of this illness. And I think that's exactly what you're seeing. Even in four months? Yes. You have to remember, when this first came out, we heard that hydroxychloroquine, this malaria medication, was thought to be effective and it has been used in in other countries. And that was our, our initial treatment. And then we realized that most people who were intubated and on a ventilator seemed not to do well. So then there's this philosophy that maybe we shouldn't intubate so soon. Historically in medicine, if someone's really struggling to breathe, you want to ease the metabolic stress. You put them on a ventilator and you rest them so that you're breathing for them. We found this to be somewhat counterproductive. And so we delay mechanical ventilation. We are proning people. People are putting put in a face down position that it, because it improves oxygenation. And at the end of the day, will lower the amount of oxygen that you have to give these patients, which will reduce a lot of the scarring of the lungs that are caused by the free radicals of oxygen. All of these things have ramped up fairly quickly over the past four months. Not quick enough, unfortunately. But yeah, this is the beauty of technology. This is the whole point of flattening the curve to let technology get ahead of this. A vaccine is coming. I would add, we're getting a better understanding of the pathophysiology of the virus as we've had more time to understand it. So for example, one of the phenomena that's contributing to some of the severe morbidity is this concept of cytokine storms and that certain people, for whatever reason, have an overreaction of their immune system. And that means that their lungs will fill up with various inflammatory cells and fluids and that contributes to the morbidity of the disease. And so we're starting to figure out how to tackle that particular element I think it's amazing how much has been learned in such a short amount of time, just starting with being able to get the RNA sequencing of the virus itself in such a short order. And then lastly, you know, we are fortunate having this pandemic occur now, as opposed to, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. For one thing, our social adaptation to it. Think about if we didn't have all this ability to communicate with each other, the isolationism that is already happening to a degree, which would be much more profound if we didn't have these other ways of connecting as we are, for example, today. But also, we are benefiting from the great work done by so many scientists during the AIDS epidemic and subsequently, where there's so much more knowledge about viruses and antiviral therapy. And there are so many medications that are on the shelf that have been tried for a variety of serious viruses in the last 25 years that experimenting with those drugs and not having to just create brand new drugs anew has also, I think, accelerated the rate of treatment, the ability to treat this, uh, this illness as well. 
Well, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're actually going to talk about something other than COVID. If you're like us, you're looking for a way to make stay at home a little more special. Well, we're going to let you in on our secret. Join Rob Vices to get luxury cocktail kits, toys, tools, tech, and other incredible items delivered straight to your home on a monthly basis. The value is incredible. Your first box is going to be a $400 tequila curation, and you can sign up for as little as $99 a month. Use the code PODCAST, and you'll save an extra $50 at sign up. So head to robvices.com to bring exciting experiences safely to your door. Remember, use the code PODCAST and go to robbvices.com. Okay, we're back with Dr. Howard J. Fullman and Dr. Stephen Tabak. And I promised you we'd talk about something other than COVID. I'd like to talk to you for a minute, Howard, about your specialty, gastroenterology. First of all, define it for us. Gastroenterology is the study of the intestinal system. So tell me, has your specialty been affected by COVID? I told you we wouldn't be talking about COVID. Yes, it has been. This virus causes symptoms and problems in many, many different systems. Again, I think as we were alluding to before, primarily this is causing trouble in the pulmonary system. But patients do have gastrointestinal symptoms often as a part of this. About 30 to 40% of patients have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. And a very common symptom has been loss of taste and loss of smell. Yeah, that's weird. What, what causes that? It's important to know that you know, viruses are not actually independent living things. Viruses are only able to exist by attaching themselves to cells and then taking over the cell infrastructure and then using the infrastructure to multiply and do other sorts of things that harm the individual. And each of these viruses has a different propensity to attach to different parts of the body based upon the chemical makeup of the virus or the receptors that the virus has that can attach to the receptors of the cell. It seems as though there's some particular connection between this virus and the nerve that controls smell and the taste buds, so the olfactory nerve and the taste buds. And in fact, that might even be the way it enters the body. And when it connects to those parts of the anatomy, it damages them, and there's a loss of taste and loss of smell. Interesting. So I wanted to ask you about gut immunity pertaining to our youth. In theory, exposing our kids to more dirt and bacteria helps them build their gut and immune system. Is this safe, or should we keep them more sanitary? Well, there's dirt, and there's other kind of dirt. You know, some people think that we have been a little bit austere in trying to avoid contact with germs and that, in fact, our immunologic system requires a regular contact with various kinds of germs so that we're constantly making antibodies and our lymphocytes have exposure to different foreign elements so that they have greater capability. So obviously, we don't want to expose our children or our, or our adults to dangerous germs, and there are many of them, and some of them can be in dirt, and some of them are in the environment, in the air, and some of them are things we have physical contact with. I should say parenthetically, people are very worried about COVID, and there's so much work going on sanitizing surfaces, and that does have some value. You, but by and large, this virus is contracted through a respiratory contact. So actually, that's why the masks are so important and the distancing is so important. 
Howard, that being said, if, as you said a minute ago, if regular exposure to germs is important, wouldn't this stay-at-home lack of exposure to any other germs because we fear COVID, wouldn't that end up having ramifications down the road where, you know, we could all die of the common cold? Yeah, I guess it's possible. Uh, I, again, I'm, I don't think any public health official or ep epidemiologist would at all recommend that long term we have everybody isolated from each other. But right now we have such an incredibly contagious virus that it's more likely that someone could acquire something bad than be exposed to something beneficial. And we're not isolating in an aseptic environment. There's germs at your home. There's germs at the post office. There's germs, you know, in the grocery store that you're still coming in contact with. And you've already had tremendous exposure throughout your life. So let's say this is a one-year deal or even a two-year deal. That alone is not going to have significant ramifications. And certainly when you weigh, I think what you were saying, Howard, is when you weigh out the, the risk benefit, the risk of actually exposing yourself to COVID far outweighs any kind of risk that you would endure by the common cold two years from now. But Bill, I do want to add on, if I may, even while we're now isolating to a degree and wearing masks, there still are things we could be doing in addition to exposure to germs that could help our immune system. What are some of those? Well, healthy eating. Even, by the way, people who have diabetes, obesity, right now, adhering to the diet that the physicians have recommended could be very beneficial to them. Losing a few pounds for someone who's a bit overweight could be very beneficial. Having a balanced diet with proper distribution between proteins, carbohydrates, and fats exercising can help the immune system. And then certain minerals and vitamins can be beneficial. Zinc probably is beneficial. Vitamin D is probably beneficial. So even taking a multiple vitamin. Vitamin D, like getting out into the sun? That as well. A little bit of sun can be beneficial. What are your feelings about the probiotic craze? Because you see the commercials that are touting this for optimal immunity, that gut health is basically the controlling factor for your immunity and probiotics are basically the answer. So first of all, we're just discovering the importance of this microbiome. Billions of bacteria starting in your small intestine to a very small extent, mostly in your colon. And these bacteria, it turns out, play important roles in our physiology. They affect everything from digestion itself to cardiovascular health, to liver health, and even to cognitive health. And there are more and more studies that show that there are relationships between the bacteria in your intestine and a variety of either healthy or unhealthy conditions in the body. Can you give us a sample of the kind of study that would result in cognitive health being affected by your gut? There are studies now that suggest that there is a relationship between the bacteria in your GI tract and the likelihood of developing dementia. The best evidence is the relationship between the bacteria in your GI tract and the, uh, the whole host of autoimmune diseases in your body, including rheumatoid arthritis and systemic lupus. I will tell you that, of course, the effects of the bacteria on the GI tract are profound. And the ability to digest various kinds of foods is dependent on the kind of bacteria you have. So, for example, lactose intolerance, which is high, very pervasive around the world, is dependent to some degree on genetics and what part of the world you come from. But it's also dependent on which bacteria you have in your GI tract. And it could be improved or worsened based upon those particular bacteria. Can you map the bacteria in the gut? I mean, we, we're doing genetic mapping. Do we know what kind of bacteria we need to have in our gut in order to be healthy? Yes and no. 
So we're getting a sense about it. Again, when you have billions of bacteria, not so easy to map that. But we have names of certain bacteria that we feel are healthy, some that are dangerous. So, you know, going to how we use that today, and Wendy was one used probiotics. So, for example, antibiotic-related diarrhea. Stephen, I'm sure, has seen more than his fair share of patients that he's had to give antibiotics to for a variety of pulmonary conditions. And some of them will get digestive symptoms from the antibiotic because the antibiotic, while killing the bad bacterium, causing the pneumonia or whatever other illness is being treated, it can kill the good stuff and that can lead to some symptoms. And so there are some studies that suggest that antibiotic-related bacteria can possibly be improved by the use of probiotic concomitantly. Is it wise for everybody to take a probiotic every day, like multiple vitamin? I don't think we've gotten there yet. I'm not sure we would know what probiotic would be the right one to use and in what conditions, but I think you'll be seeing more and more people advocating for probiotics in particular clinical situations and perhaps more pervasively based upon what data is generated in the future. What do you think about all these commercials then, where there's the probiotic wars? Is this responsible marketing or is this just taking advantage of a craze where there's insufficient evidence to support it? Well, again, we have to delve into each. The problem with TV commercials is they're not very nuanced and they don't really take into account the specifics of various scientific studies that you're talking about, Stephen. So if we were to line up the studies on the use of probiotics for antibiotic-related diarrhea or C. diff in particular, I think there's probably an equal number of studies pro and con. So with that in mind, I don't want to put your back to the wall on this, but one of the things we like to do on medicine we're still practicing is sort of debunking various medical myths and theories and certainly frank charlatanism of people pushing therapies that are that are not beneficial. With all these unknowns, and you as a highly respected, very well-educated gastroenterologist, dedicated your life to this field, would you think now, because there are so many unknowns, that the recommendation would be not to take a probiotic just as a matter of a routine course? I agree with that. I would not recommend that. But I do recommend people being open-minded, especially if they have some chronic GI condition or other health condition where it's been touted that probiotics might be beneficial. That's the kind of thing they should talk to the doctor about. But as a matter of course, that everybody should be on a probiotic every day, I don't think the data exists for that. So I want to go back to the brain-gut connection that you mentioned earlier. Over the years, the strides we've made in that world are fascinating, especially in regard to mental illness and depression. Now, in this heightened time of pandemic, where quarantine and isolation, fear and uncertainty, and surely anxiety are running amok, what is your specific recommendation on how we should be managing our gut to optimize ourselves for mental health? There's a lot that's been written about the brain-gut connection, and it goes really in in two ways. So it seems as though certain aspects of the function of the GI tract affect mood, depression, anxiety may have something to do with the GI function. And it works both ways in the sense that when someone is depressed or anxious, they often will get GI symptoms that may be a reflection of an underlying GI disorder or not. And the way one's GI function is going can affect their mood. So I just want to generalize this even beyond the GI tract for a second. And let's talk about how do we control mood from the point of view of a non-psychiatrist at a time like this. First of all, one thing that helps both depression 
NGI function is regular exercise. So we're coming back to exercise again, but there's an enormous amount that's written about walking as being a very effective antidepressant. So one thing I recommend for folks now is walking outside in a socially distanced or physically distanced way on a daily basis can really help you move an awful lot. Light, seeing light on a regular basis is a very important part of controlling one's mood. Secondly, we are what we eat. And with all due respect to the pulmonary specialists and the cardiologists and even the neurologists, we gastroenterologists think the GI tract is the most important part of the body. <laughs> so here, here are things that can help a lot. And again, everyone's got different physiology and some of us have intestinal disorders and some not. But these are some generally wise ways to live. First of all, avoid really large meals. That's generally not healthy. Now, the GI tract, we are constructed and we've evolved that we actually can eat infrequently and still survive. We are capable of being that way. So the hunter side of us, part of our evolution, meant that we needed to possibly go days without eating and then we get a big meal and that would suffice. So we're, our, our GI tract can function that way, but it's not at its best function that way. Foods that help us and foods that don't. The easiest food to digest, by and large, are proteins. And fats can be okay to digest, but they lead to a slowness to the GI tract. Uh, they slow down the stomach and the emptying of the stomach and create a sense of bloating and actually can sometimes make people mentally a little bit reduced. I'm advocating for a balanced diet, which has a good amount of protein, a modest amount of fat, a moderate amount of carbohydrate, minimizing sugar. And doing so in modest amounts several times a day. As we wrap this up, I wonder if you guys would each talk a little about how do you feel this pandemic has changed medicine and your specialties for our lifetimes? Well, certainly because of the frontline effect, physicians, we pride ourselves on being current when it comes to literature and making sure that we're, we're staying up with the times because there's so much research that goes on day in and day out. But I have never seen such a cooperative effort of sharing of information in real time as it's coming hot off the press in such an enthusiastic way. And I have a feeling we're going to be behaving this way for years to come. I think it's going to become part of our, our new habit, if you will, to constantly be checking the, the latest literature in, in, a, in a more voracious fashion than we have in the past, because that's certainly what's going on at this point. Is that nationwide, Steve, or worldwide? It's worldwide. It's nationwide predominantly because, you know, we tend to, especially in this country, we speak one language. You know, any English speaking literature we're going to see, I can't read the Danish literature. I can't read the Italian literature. But as soon as it gets translated, it is worldwide. But I think there also will be a vulnerability on the human side. And not just medically, but certainly on the medical side, because we feel responsible for our patients. Although medical science has limitations, and we're always aware of those limitations, we've never felt them to this extent, the helplessness that we have felt with a virus that we truly started off with zero treatments for, watching people you know, deteriorate, support the body until they recover. I think we will always be a little bit on guard and, and feeling our vulnerability more than we ever have before. And I've always felt this vulnerability. I mean, I think if you're a competent, conscientious physician, I think you realize that whatever you've learned in medical school and the years of training, it's still deficient. There's still not enough known to save everybody, to diagnose everybody. But the vulnerability that I feel now, I think I'm going to carry with me throughout the rest of my career. That's definitely a sense of humility. 
I think all of the doctors and other medical professionals feel that. I, I think we've always been a very collaborative profession. We are now at our greatest degree of collaboration in many, many years, and I think that'll continue. Respect for science and what the scientific method can lead to and honoring the people who work within the scientific method and the expertise that gets developed, I think, is an important part of medicine that I think is being enhanced right now as a result of this as well. And respect for the patient, because obviously we have many, many courageous patients who are suffering so and families that are going through so much and doing it with so much class and grace at a very difficult time. Well, Dr. Howard J. Fullman, I want to thank you for joining us again tonight. You know, you, you've left us at the end with a bit of a sunrise in the horizon that lets us think that there are aspects of the situation that are actually going to make us a better people and medicine a better practice. I hope you'll come back and join us again. And Dr. Stephen Tabak, I love you, man. Thanks for coming. I love you too. Howard, great talking to you. Bye-bye. Doctor, doctor, you gotta help me see what's going on. Doctor, doctor. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Howard Fullman. This episode was hosted by Dr. Stephen Tabak and me, Bill Curtis. We're Still Practicing is produced and edited by A.J. Mosley and sound sweetened by Michael Kennedy. Music was created and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment. We value your opinion. And take care, everybody. Doctor, doctor. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.